Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You might actually be the most derivative one of all. I mean, Christ, the same house. Maybe so. But you forgot the first rule of surviving a stab movie. Never answer the- I'm bored. Wait! Welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking white shorts and white gloves. We're talking scene double. And we're talking feel bad cinema. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking a rewind scene uh, to end all rewind scenes. Is that a thing? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there are a couple in cinema, but we don't often see them in horror. Well, and not like this. Everyone, we are discussing Michael Haneke's Funny Games. Uh, Which one, you ask? Um... Doesn't matter. <laughs> Whichever one you like, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I, I know that we watched the original one for this, but then uh, you and maybe our guests, who will come in soon, watch the remake. So we'll have a lot of things to talk about, um, I guess, in, in that ballpark of things. Mm-hmm. And of course, folks, this is kicking off our new theme month of toxic masculinity. And if you thought this was the worst that we're Oof. going to talk about... Well, we have other films. I will just say, I think we did pretty good with our content warnings for At Pupil, but let's just say maybe for this month, um, mm-hmm. content warning for uh, every episode. 
<laughs> yes, and specifically in this one, the dog does die. The dog definitely dies. But okay, before we get too far into this, let's bring in the aforementioned guest who's waiting in the wings. Everyone, he is a founding member of our Horror Queers book club with bylines at Philadelphia Magazine, Philadelphia Gay News, We Live Entertainment, and Philadelphia Row Home Magazine. He has written scripts for some of your anime favorites at Funimation Entertainment and Crunchyroll. <sighs> but he's probably best known <laughs> for having no gag reflex, which he lost in middle school. Please welcome Justin <laughs> Nordell. <laughs> Guten Abend, mein Horror Queers. <laughs> and uh, uh, Guten Morgen and Guten Tag and Guten Abend to the li listeners whenever you're listening to this. I don't know any German. I know Kinder. I know that. <laughs> like a Kinder surprise? No, ki ki Kinder is like a kid. That's, the, that's what they call kids in Germany and Austria. Oh. But like kindergarten? Like a Kinder Georgie is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> Georgie. <laughs> Wait, what is it, Justin? Can you tell us that pronunciation again. Georg. And the little one? Georgie. Okay. <laughs> he refuses to play your game. He refuses, apparently so. Anyway, welcome to the show, Justin. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. Um, not exactly sure why you chose me for funny games. Um, <clears throat> I mean, f funny's in the title. I'm funny. I totally get it. The, the movie, however, isn't. Uh, but when Funny Games premiered at Cannes, it was called A Pile of Sophisticated Nazism. Uh, <laughs> and I, frankly, look like Hitler's wet dream um, until Hitler finds out that I'm gay and, and Jewish. Uh, and then I'm just Hitler's wet dream. So that must be why I'm here. <laughs> Wait, so I was going to ask why you chose to come on to this episode. But uh, what I'm hearing is Joe assigned this film to you. Oh, this was assigned to me. And, and <laughs> in all honesty, I've really dug deep as to why Joe would think of me for funny games. And I finally figured it out. It's because the direct, the correct pronunciation of the director's name in German is actually uh, Michael Hanukkah. And I'm oh. probably one of the only people that Joe knows that celebrates Hanukkah. So that's why I'm here. It must be that. It couldn't possibly be the letterbox score that you gave this film. A near-perfect score, ladies, gentlemen, and theys. I love this film. Okay, okay, okay. Well, let, let's jump in right there then. So what is your relationship with this film, and which version did you see first? Well, I first watched the original German film before the remake was even made. I watched it for my 11th grade film, Klaus. Shout out Ooh. to Mr. Kane at Central Bucks East High School. What? Wait, I'm yeah. sorry, for what was the purpose for a, uh, is it a public school? It was a public school. A, a public high school to show this to a class of high school juniors. Well, we, it was one of the options that we could watch on our own. Uh, okay. And we were, we were 17 at the time. So, you know, it was absolutely fine. Um, but it was looking at the, the structure and some of the fourth wall breaking, mm, uh, which right. we'll talk about later. Yes. Uh, and then what, I'm assuming you just jumped at the chance to see the American version when it came out? Uh, well, I watched the American remake in theaters. I was already a Naomi Watts stan from mm -hmm. seeing Mulholland Drive and was just so blown away by her performance in the remake. Well, th that's it. So uh, my journey with this film. So I, I did see the original in college. So this would have been like 2007. It was my freshman year of college. And it was the same year the, the American remake came out. And I only heard about it because of the news of this American remake. So, you know, this was back when IMDb message boards were still a thing. So like I had inadvertently spoiled myself with the mm. rewind scene. Um, but then as I read about it, I became more fascinated with it. So I, I read basically the whole plot of this movie, and then I Netflix mailed the disc over to my dorm room. Ooh la la. I know. <laughs> 
<laughs> and watched it. Um, and then, ah, God, like, I guess what? The, the remake comes out a couple months later. So I took my... <laughs> My unknowing sister and oh, I want to no. say her boyfriend at the time and maybe two of her other like friends who were two years younger than me to go see the American remake in theaters. <laughs> uh, po- podcasts are notoriously a visual medium, so I hope everyone heard my jaw dropping. for the record i did before we walked into the theater i told them all hey y'all just so you know this isn't like a normal movie and it's trying to make you upset i will explain it at the end but i don't want to spoil it going in (laughs) wow what a caveat uh you know what i think they all walked out frustrated but when i explained to them the purpose of the rewind scene which again we'll get to later um i think more than half of them were more on board with the film Right. Okay. Well, you you got 50% then. (laughs) There you go. But Joe, this was your first time watching this film. This was indeed, yeah. So kind of like you, Trace, I had already had the rewind slash end of this film spoiled for me. It would have been a couple of years before that, because I think I heard this talked about in film school as, you know, kind of like what Justin was saying. It's an Mm -hmm. example of fourth wall breaking. It's confrontational cinema. I think people were like, oh, it's kind of like Jean-Luc Godard, where he really wants to make you uncomfortable and make sure that you know you're watching a film and you can't enjoy it. And all of the Knew the other bullshit that all of the people I went to film school said, mostly the men. The women were good. Um, <laughs> all this to say, I wasn't really sure if there was a purpose to watch the film if you already knew the ending. So I just kind of held off until I had an excuse to do it, which happened to be this, this podcast. <laughs> and then I watched both films in less than 24 hours. Oh, <laughs> and so, okay, general thoughts. Uh, yay, nay. D- does knowing the, the ending ruin this film experience for you? I don't think it ruins it, but it definitely doesn't have the same kind of emotional or visceral impact. Like, you're kind of waiting for it right. the whole time. Uh, but I will say, I don't think it diminishes the overall impact of the film. I think both of these films are amazing, but kind of like Justin teased off the top, it really does feel like one film just with different actors. I mean, I think it, it you know, I feel like people like to make fun of the the Psycho remake for being a shot-by-shot shot remake. Um, mm-hmm. We just saw this year um, the remake of Last Shift into Malum by also that film's same director. But I would argue that this is maybe the case of the most shot-by-shottiest remake I've ever seen. <laughs> Except when you say shoddiest, it sounds like shoddiest, Sha- as Sha- in with a D. <laughs> shottiest by shottiest remake I've ever seen. <laughs> it is one of the most Xeroxed films you've ever seen. Yes. Yeah. And I think the other thing that makes it unique, and folks, we're... we're probably going to talk a little bit about the remake as we go but we are going to focus it mostly on the 1997 version and then we'll have a conversation at the end about why we think heineke did this but so we basically got malum and then the other example that comes to mind when people talk about this film or maybe is in conversation with this film is the grudge Oh, right, because that's the original film's director doing the American version. Oh, Takashi Shimizu did the original Juon, and then he directed the Grudge remake. Yeah, yeah, I actually, I forgot about that. Ooh, ooh, that's a fun layer to that movie, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but okay, so back to funny games. So I'll just g- jump right in here, because we're going all the way back to the 60s, y'all. And before I start, uh, all of this, I mean, all of this comes from an interview with... I'm going to say I'm going to keep saying Michael Haneke. I'm sorry. Uh, on the Criterion Blu-ray um, from May of 2017. Hanukkah, Hanukkah, Festival of Life. Oh, my God. Justin. 
So in the late 60s, uh, Hanukkah was working as a script editor for a local German broadcaster, and he shared an office with a colleague his age, and whenever they had nothing else to do, I'm guessing on smoke breaks, lunch breaks, whatever, uh, they would talk about ideas for movies they could write. And that is when the initial idea for Funny Games was first brought up. So Hanukkah wrote a first draft of a script in the late 60s, um, and it was called... Funnily enough, Joe, that you brought up Jean-Luc Godard, uh, he called it Weekend. Oh, okay. Now we go. It was about a married couple who drive out to their weekend home, and at the same time, this young guy who's kind of accidentally committed a crime has stumbled across the place and holed up there. So when they arrive, he's there. Um, mayhem ensues. It basically ends with the woman killing her husband. It was a very th uh, typical thriller-type story. I was going to say, I feel like I've seen that movie. <laughs> well, well, it's interesting because he actually recycled that idea for Time of the Wolf with Isabelle Huppert. That's how that movie opens as a family going out to their cabin and having a family already be holed up there except Ooh. that one is more of a dystopian kind of sci-fi movie well oh, I, okay. I was actually gonna ask have y'all because I, I unfortunately this is actually the only hanukkah film that i've ever seen my husband has been trying to get me to watch cachet for years and i just mm -hmm. never pulled the trigger on it but um have y'all seen any of his other films i have watched every single feature that he has made that Jesus. has gone theatrical that is available in the u.s i think he is an absolute genius. He is a director that very, very much has gone on record about wanting to um, hold up mirrors to society to push the envelope. Mm -hmm. um, before he even did um, Funny Games, he had put out um, an original kind of trilogy of films, all that kind of connect with our relationship with with media the uh, seventh continent benny's video and 71 fragments of a chronology of chance and he followed that up with a film um that was uh, a kafka um adaptation the castle the castle uh, right. which is also excellent and so i can't say enough about checking out uh hanukkah's work especially um amor and the white ribbon um some of his later works that have received a lot of attention internationally and a lot of awards well i what i really actually want to see out benny's video which i found out today um, as of this recording is streaming on max um because hmm. the father and son in that movie are played by uh the actor that plays georg in this movie and the actor that plays paul in this movie oh wild okay yeah. I, I mean, I will actually go as far as to say they are probably one of the bleakest double features that you can possibly do. Um, but the, the actor that plays Paul is is still a, a young teenager, um, very much playing an, an early psychopath. And it's about a child that, that kills another child and then just goes about his life and goes about his day um, until his parents find out. And then they have to decide whether or not they're going to put their child away or if they're going to cover up for him. It is a an absolutely fantastic film that is one of those kind of once you watch it you never want to see yeah. it again <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> uh man oh i also want to point out too um three of our four lead actors are dead now oh wow yeah the only one who's alive is arno fritsch who plays paul but um both uh ulrich muhe and suzanne lothar and frank gearing they are all dead so it's actually incredibly tragic because uh ulrich and suzanne were were actually husband and wife then they made this film together after isabel Huppert turned it down yeah um, <laughs> and, and because they had starred together in the castle the kafka film that that he had made and actually all three of the actors who are no longer with us also all starred in the castle who knows if there was 
some Final Destination stuff on site. Um, yeah. Long story short, Ulrich died of uh, stomach cancer not long after making an incredible film called The Lives of Others. And she uh, committed suicide one day before the fifth anniversary of his passing um, and very much cited that leaving living without him wasn't worth living. That's interesting that you brought that up. I'm sorry, I know we're kind of going off track with like, like the, uh, the real lives of these people, but it's interesting because if you look up on her, like it'll say, like, oh, her cause of death was never released. But in the interview with Haneke on this Criterion set, he he's talking about how all of them have died. You know, it's really sad because he was friends with all of them. But he's like, Ulrich died. Um, and he corrects himself. And he's like, yes, yeah, so when she passed, or I'm sorry, um, committed suicide. And I was like, that's a weird catch. But I, I assume that was probably an accident. Anyway, so that script for Weekend, the non-John Luc Godard one, um, he sent that script to the German Film Fund, and they offered him a grant of 300,000 German marks, which, according to Hanukkah, is not enough to make a movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, since he knew no one in the film industry, he just forgot about it and went on with his life, uh, working in TV, then theater, then TV again, and the script just laid in his drawer. But at some point, and I, I don't know when this was, but I have to assume it was either the late 80s or early 90s, he decided to take a look at it again, uh, rewriting the story a bit. And then, then he came up with these two young guys as the antagonist. Um, but in his words, you know, the cliche would have been to have this bourgeois family and suddenly these underdogs or street rats would show up and exact social revenge by killing them. But the subversion to the typical version of this story is that in the film we have, these guys are in tennis outfits. They are well-educated. They're more articulate than the couple. Um, this isn't a clash between different classes or different social circles. That's a different film. And I love this. Uh, Hanukkah says, that's a film the Americans would make. <laughs> <laughs> Hanukkah does not seem to have a lot of um, affinity towards Americans or the art they put out. Um, it's quite amusing. Yeah. We should also be specific. He's referring to the United States. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. He's Yes, Americans, like United States Americans, not mm -hmm. North Americans. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't want to get lumped in, that's all. No, that's fine. But, but he says, and I quote, I'll leave that to the Americans. I find all of that too predictable. And he references a film like um, William Wyler's 1955 film, The Desperate Hours, which stars Humphrey Bogart about a gangster who takes a family hostage. So his subversion with funny games was that the villains would be people from the protagonist's own social circle uh, who do it and they can do it anytime they wish. All they got to do is ring the bell. So when he started writing the story, his intention became to break all existing taboos and turn them on their heads. So, for example, there's a rule, don't kill animals. And so he kills the dog right off the bat. Mm hmm. And then we go from there. <laughs> we go from there. Um, delving into a more general description of the film, though, he's on the record as saying that this is not a genre film. It reflects on the genre, but it's not just that specific genre. And, you know, he's like, I, I use the thriller genre to reflect on the manipulation via the medium itself. And he picked thriller specifically as opposed to like comedy or romance because he believes that the thriller film is good at showing an audience how easily they're being manipulated. And that's very much a theme in a lot of uh, Hanukkah's work. I mean, he very much has said time and time again um, that it's a moralistic comment on the influence of media violence on, mm -hmm. on society. And that's something that, again, is found through his first three films and again um, throughout his filmography. Well, and it's interesting. There's an interview with a film historian on this Criterion Blue, uh, the film historian Alexander Horvath, and he... Kind of goes on to say how this film specifically, it it doesn't necessarily predict what, what happens to media in the future, but he makes a comparison specifically with the rewind scene 
to gamer culture and video games and how we have a more um, complicit part in those. And so this is what's something that this film was trying to tap into. I mean, I think the other interesting thing about his work is that it often does defy genre. So I think it's interesting that he explicitly says, like, I don't look at it as a thriller film. I just kind of use the conventions because in some ways you still need to market the film, right? So Mm -hmm. I think that gives it an easy container in which... He can put his ideas and say, ooh, I'm <laughs> I'm basically ferreting a message into this and people are going to come expecting to see a classic home invasion film. And we kind of get that. <laughs> we kind of get that. Just yeah. a little bit. It still adheres to the tropes for the most part. It just then also fucks with our expectations. But Hanukkah, it's even more than that. Um, so there's a great um, documentary about uh, Hanukkah called Michael H. Profession Director that's available in the United States streaming for free on, on Vudu. And um, a lot of the uh, Hanukkah quotes that I'm going to talk about tonight come directly from that. Um, but he very specifically says that the obscene is that which transgresses that which is permitted. And so for him, it's all about showing the the audience what we are um, accepting and then going beyond that to create create mm-hmm. this obscene um, because of that he actually when we're talking genre the the two boys the actors that play Peter and Paul you know Tom and Jerry Beavis and Butthead whatever they're calling themselves skinny at and that fatty. moment skinny and tubby <laughs> yes absolutely um, he told those two actors you are acting in a comedy he right. didn't want them to see the suffering and see that they were acting in a comedy while he told the other actors that they were doing realism. And it's because of that that it gives a truly scary effect because it emphasizes their indifference to the suffering of others. Yeah. Um, he goes on to say that a visible psychopath is reassuring to a viewer because a viewer can say that person's a psychopath. But he wanted to give something else, something obscene. Well, and to piggyback off of that, though, he even goes on to say, though, is, you know, like a lot of times, especially in American films, the suffering is made more bearable by having the villain demonstrate compassion for the audience's sake. And that's something Hanukkah hates so much. That's why you don't see that in this film either. (laughs) Yeah, and that's what makes it a really hard watch in places. Hanukkah also, if you really want to see him, there's a great uh, interview with him. Uh, It's a writer's round table uh, where he takes down Spielberg and he says that the most obscene element in any film that's ever been made is the shower scene in Schindler's List because you're actively showing the viewer what is happening to these characters and whether or not it is gas or it's water that's going to come out Um, and because you are showing it because you're taking the the viewer on this really really you know almost perverted ride in in toying with them um, that's something that that is is not um, you know, is not something that he can stand behind. He, if you watch Funny Games, it's a lot of what we talk about in horror, a lot of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even the remake, that there's so much that your mind thinks you've seen that mm-hmm. you don't. So much of the violence in this film happens off screen or while we're focused on other mm-hmm. characters. And that's because, again, for him, what does transgress, and again, happens in a lot of American films, is that they insist on showing us the horrific and the terrible. And then providing catharsis or reassuring us, don't worry, it's okay. Well, 
Okay, so so that that decision though to not show violence on screen was a very conscious decision, and Hanukkah believed that was a problem for many people that watched the film. Because bear with me here, because I think it takes him a while to get to his point, but he does eventually get to it. Um, he says, "We as a society have been powerfully accustomed to expect, for half a century at least, that all violence will be eliminated from our field of vision. Obvious and unavoidable physical violence has disappeared from the lives of a great majority of people in the West, but violence as such has not disappeared." It's in people's relationships, their everyday activities, the violence-prone relationships in the competitive workplace that every individual faces today. Violence in families, relationships, politics. We don't see it, but it is happening. Funny Games makes that visible, quote-unquote, so to speak, by never showing the violence. And if we're honest, we have to recognize that we too are surrounded by violence and often resort to it ourselves, just not in an immediately visible or physical way anymore. That is one aspect of the discomfort that people feel about this film. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think you do. It's one of those things where we it takes the film doing this to help us understand how complicit and how almost like amenable our viewing experiences often are right like it's funny how we talk about something like comfort horror because the very concept should be antithetical and i think hanukkah would say what the fuck are you talking about if it's doing its job it couldn't possibly but of course you know we don't look at our media that way because we're often not critical in the way the message is being delivered. Well, and I mean, I, I look, I, maybe even me today, or especially me back in 2007, I was one of these people that Hanukkah was criticizing because I heard about how this was such an upsetting, frustrating, like disturbing film. And I and was edgelord went to see it. Yes. And so I was very much like, oh, so again, when I got that Netflix disc, I was like, wow, it's not really that violent or like offensive to me. Um, and maybe it's because I knew about that rewind scene going in. But again, I wanted to see violence. I wanted to see gore. And that is mm -hmm. an aspect of someone that Hanukkah is directly criticizing in this film. <laughs> right. <laughs> you are that American, Trace. Yes. Congratulations. <laughs> But, okay, so it wasn't until later, though, when Hanukkah got the idea to make this film into um, uh, something about the medium itself, a self-reflexive film. And he looked for ways to incorporate that self-reflexivity. So what many people probably consider the theme of the film was after the last element added. But we have time to thank for that, because had this gotten produced in the 60s, we wouldn't have this version of the film or anything really like it. So since the script's inception in the 60s to its actual production in the late 90s, media had evolved in a myriad of different ways. Uh, this led Hanukkah to think about the responsibility of an artist in the media, the way the media makes reality itself unreal. And he's talking about this in 2017, but I have to believe that like the concept of fake news is playing something into his his answer here. Without question, and, and that's something that's explored um, very thoroughly in one of his earlier films, 71 Fragments of a Chronology of Chance about a crime. And in there, we're seeing so many different news stories and so many people that are going about and it all culminates um in a in a true crime that that was committed um and so mm. we're seeing all of these actual news clips of of the time and we're seeing all of these characters representing real people that were a part um of this this tragic incident and it's something that for for hanukkah is is very very much a uh med meditation um on how we consume 
our media. Well, the inspiration for the fourth wall break, which I mean, that's kind of that's what the thing is, right? We have one character just cons- not not consistently, but um, regularly, regularly breaking the fourth wall and addressing the audience. But um, the inspiration for that, though, came from a 1963 film directed by Tony Richardson called Tom Jones. And this was actually the uh, best picture winner that year. But in this film, there's a chase scene where a character turns to the camera and says, I hope they don't catch me or something like that. This shocked Hanukkah, and it became one of the most powerful Powerful cinematic moments of insight for him. Uh, in his words, I was suddenly made aware of my role and how completely the story had me in its clutches. Uh, he goes on to say that the action of breaking the fourth wall is a great way to make things transparent. So with funny games, he asked himself, how do I do that? How do I be that transparent in a so-called realistic film where viewers fall for my tricks? How do I make them realize it? And that's why we get the first wink with the dog game. And it's something that in the film Tom Jones, which if you haven't seen is is a delight. Um, Albert Finney is the one that breaks the, the fourth wall consistently throughout that film. Um, it's kind of a, a, a bodice ripper comedy of, of the time, mm-hmm. um, and ironically, uh, has been remade um, into a miniseries starring uh, Sophie Wilde, who is everyone's horror it girl after Talk to Me. Oh, wow. oh okay. shit. <laughs> Wait, so this is a new, th- a relatively, re- oh yeah, tw- 2023 television series. No shit. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> Albert Finney not only does that during the chase scene, he also does it in a in a number of, of other ways. At one point, he's talking about, uh, he's talking to a woman about uh, these daughters. And then he, he talks about how hungry they are, kind of in a flirtatious, you know, sexually deviant way to the screen, which again, for that time period and in this genre was really, really groundbreaking. Um, the first time that the fourth wall had ever been broken in film was actually in 1918 in a film that was directed by a woman. Do, 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 do. Women do everything first and better. <laughs> well, it was because when I was reading this quote from him, I was like, ah, what is the earliest movie I can remember breaking the fourth wall? And what's fun, it's just kind of a basic answer. But for me, it's um, it's the James Bond movie on Her Majesty's Secret Service when George, George Lazenby took over. Because he like there's a fight scene and he looks at the camera and just goes, this never happened to the other guy. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> hey, like you didn't say Ferris Bueller, so it's a great answer. There we go. You know what? <laughs> I will accept that praise. <laughs> So, okay, Funny Games premiered at Cannes on May 14th, 1997, and uh, apparently all hell broke loose. (laughs) Supposedly one-third of the audience had walked out by the end of the film. Pro and con, it was a high-decibel shouting match, so people were foaming at the mouth, some with rage, some with enthusiasm. When certain people got so upset about the film, uh, Hanukkah was kind of like, well, why didn't they just walk out? But then he goes on to say, this film is for those that deserve it. The people who really wanted to watch this movie did so regardless. But to be outraged afterwards that they stayed, even though they found it repugnant? Well, that's a bit hypocritical. (laughs) I love that quote. But also, as someone who's never walked out of a movie, I'm kind of like, it would never even occur to me. Like, I've never been so outraged at a film that I would say, oh, fuck you, movie. I would be like... Okay, I'm going to keep giving you a chance. <laughs> oh, Joe, you've never walked out of a film. I've no. never walked out of a film. Really? Oh, I've only done it once. Which film was it? Will Smith's Wild Wild West. Ooh, oh, I saw that twice in theaters. <laughs> <laughs> Classic I, I, American. I was there with a boy and we went to go have sex instead. Uh, probably a better choice. I mm-hmm. was 10 years old, so I was not having sex. <laughs> 
Okay, well, nevertheless, the reception does lean positive. We're looking at a 71% of Rotten Tomatoes, an average score of 7.1 out of 10, a Metacritic, a 61 out of 100, and the highest score is from Letterboxd users who have given mm-hmm. it a 7.8 out of 10. That's incredibly low to me. This film is a masterpiece. You can say you don't like what it does or how mm-hmm. it makes you feel, but I, I don't know that you can critique its technical... I don't know. I, I, look, for me, this is like a four and a half out of five. Look, there are, and we'll talk about this as we get into the meta aspects of the film, but there are a lot of people who think that this film is talking down to them and they yeah. don't like that. Oh, okay. <laughs> Cause I'm like, yes, to the first point and boo hoo on you for the second point. Like if you feel like it's talking down to you, that's because it probably is. That's kind of my thing. And I feel like we talked about this with the movie. Oh, I, I can't remember what it was this year or last year. But I was just kind of like, yeah, the movie's making fun of me. Like me. Mm-hmm. like uh, Me specifically, a group of people that I'm I'm with. But I like that. I think that's yeah. more fun than just watching something that's just cookie cutter and boring and pandering to me. 100%. And that's Hanukkah's goal is to challenge their viewer And it's just one of those things that you have to say going into this, am I willing to be challenged today or not? Exactly. Most filmgoers aren't. Aren't. Yeah. Well, And that's why when I brought my sister and her gaggle of friends to go see this remake in theaters, I was like, just so y'all know. (laughs) Mm. So rude. I cannot believe you did that. (laughs) I'll have to message her and be like, do you remember Funny Games, that one with Naomi Watts where they rewind the scene (laughs) and see what she says? Tell Tell us which emoji she sends back to you. Yeah, she's like a shit emoji or like a, yeah. Um, all right, last thing before I pass it off to you, Joe. Um, since the film's premiere, it has achieved a kind of cult status in a way that Hanukkah does not like. Um, I imagine that, it, I mean, again, like, if you were in the theater in 1997 watching this, this is probably something unlike anything you've seen before. That's not really the case with the film now, and I think by now most people kind of know what they're getting into when they walk into it, but he mm-hmm. refers to a uh, Stanley Kubrick and Clockwork Orange because I guess there was a time when Stanley Kubrick thought about lifting that film out of like rotation because it was being viewed as a cult film and not the way he intended it to be viewed well it was also inspiring real life violence and he felt that people were misinterpreting the message so he didn't want to make it available to them well okay that's maybe not so that's in the public's best interest that's not really i don't think what hanukkah was (laughs) doing here (laughs) he was like y'all are enjoying this movie too much stop it <laughs> you should be hate watching this. But like but and that's the thing, you know. I mean, funny game strangely enough or maybe not strangely at all when you look at how the media landscape has developed um over the years, it's become kind of a touchstone film in how we interact with media. And that's that's part of the reason why I love it so much. Again, as you have both said, it's not an enjoyable watch, I would say, but it is a fascinating watch. Yeah. yeah, my husband sat down and watched part of it with me today and he'd like to say a big old screw you to both of you. Okay. Mission accomplished. Everyone, (laughs) Justin's husband is notoriously like anti horror films. Like, I I showed him clips from Scream Two and 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 I know what you did last summer, and he was not having it. (laughs) Let let it be let it be known that in our vows, he said that he would watch more horror films with me. But also let it be known, according to Hanukkah, this is not a horror film. Yeah, you should have told him that and strapped him down and made him watch it. I I did tell him that, and then uh, there was lots of screaming and blood, and he told me I'm a liar. Okay, oh, so he, he not made, that much blood. I know. Well, he saw the kid die, basically, is what you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. We didn't even see the kid die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Just the aftermath. Go ahead, Joe. 
Okay, so because this is Toxic Masculinity Month, I thought it might be helpful to kick off a bit of a discussion about what exactly that means, because unfortunately, kind of like the word woke, people misinterpret what it actually means or where it comes from. So I'm just pulling a definition, flat definition from WebMD. (laughs) Toxic masculinity is an attitude or set of social guidelines stereotypically associated with manliness that often have a negative impact. And here's the part that people always confuse a negative impact on men, women and society in general. So this is not about like men behaving badly and then women suffer. It's like men behaving badly and everybody suffers question because i know because you programmed this before you had seen the film do you view um the the relationship between peter and paul as a lot of toxic masculinity given the fact that i almost like they are characters but because paul is like on some fourth dimensional level of like not in the film i don't know well here let me let me continue because i think it might help to address some of your point So toxic masculinity points out that certain behaviors and ways of thinking often associated with masculinity from mental and physical toughness to sexism and homophobia have a negative and often dangerous impact on the world. Final point is that uh, this is not a new term. It came out in the late 20th century from the men's movement, which was not always a piece of garbage, (laughs) aka it has since been co-opted by toxic masculinity by garbage people yeah got it (laughs) but to to answer your question trace i mean i think that this is a soft introduction to toxic masculinity Mm -hmm. like when we get into next week's film we can have a much more thorough conversation Mm -hmm. but the way that class to me intersects with toxic masculinity in this film could be considered some kind of rationale or explanation for why these boys are acting the way that they are they're putting on a performance And it's not a socially condoned performance, but it's the way that they think that they have to act to accomplish what they need to do. A hundred percent. And I think it's really important to even discuss uh, toxic masculinity uh, within the queer uh, world and queer spaces Mm -hmm. because um, there's genuinely so many cultural pressures for men to behave a certain way, quote unquote, like Mm -hmm. men. Um, And so if you are male identified for any of a number of reasons, there's that expectation that that's there. And I think what's interesting in this film is that there is a point where um, Peter refers to Paul as, as being queer. Um, yes. Whether yeah. that's true or not is, is up for debate. We never know. <laughs> we never know because we don't know anything about them by the end of the film, if I'm being honest. But mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is, is that this is, is brought up. And if we watch the interactions between Peter and Paul for the majority of the film, it's a lot of the toxic masculinity you can find um, within queer relationships where yep. someone is idolizing Um, a real kind of quote-unquote masculine behavior in this sense, violence, which is associated more with traditionally male uh, than than female. And this violence is something that is then a goal uh, and something that's being, um, you know, perpetuated further by by Peter, or sorry, by Paul, rather. There isn't a single point in this film where Paul commits an act of violence unless Peter has already done so. Um, And so if we are going to go with the reading that we have Paul as a queer character, well, it's because of this toxic masculinity that he's trying to keep up with the man that he loves, that he idolizes. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's something that consistently we see Peter kind of tearing down Paul, even almost in a, in a cuck relationship or something where there's um, some masochism there. And I think it's really interesting that you 
included this as part of toxic masculinity because if you do give this film a queer reading it is there front and center oh. Yes, I mean, I, I even think, I mean, yes, more so um, Peter than Paul, but like, I, I God, do I want to say Peter's effeminate? I don't even think he's effeminate. He's just, um, well, he's a follower. I was going right? to say weak, and I was like, no, that doesn't, <laughs> weak doesn't I, equal queer. <laughs> well, I mean, and that falls into toxic masculinity parameters, right? Where right. it's like, oh, well, you're displaying more traditionally feminine Y'all, I just gave that entire and... speech with Peter and Paul reversed. It's okay. It's okay. It's fine. It's okay. But everyone knows what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul is the dominant. Paul is the dominant. Peter is the cherubic, innocent cuck. Yeah. Well, and I will say, though, one thing about that remake is, because I, I, I love Brady Corbett. <laughs> <laughs> and I just like watching him in that role. <laughs> well, it's doubly weird, Trace. This is back-to-back weeks where we're basically talking about members of the cast of mysterious skin yes okay yes <laughs> i was like we waited me feel, yeah, i was yes. queuing you and it didn't come out right it's fine it's okay. um i think the other thing is that i look at this as a bit of a more obscure version of leopold and loeb mm-hmm. yeah i can, I can ho- totally 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 see that which ironically was made into a film murder by numbers starring michael huh. yep starring mm-hmm. michael pitt i'm also okay uh it, and, uh, admittedly i have not seen this film I, I i i need to but doesn't the beginning of this kind of remind you of speak no evil I- immensely especially with the um the the half interactions with with others where there's obviously some subtext intention to something deeper and darker going on well it's also a bit of comedy of manners right i mean a very fucking dark comedy but it's kind of hey why won't you leave why aren't why are you treating me with such respect and so on like this dance that we are unwilling to deviate away from Mm -hmm. because society tells us oh don't kick someone out of your house don't confront someone when they're doing something inappropriate yeah (laughs) otherwise this is gonna happen (laughs) well yeah uh okay so with that context in mind let's talk about the movie and i'm gonna make a couple of references to tarja lane's article hanukkah's funny games with the audience bracket revisited (laughs) okay so we open with a series of aerial tracking shots of a car driving on the highway and we're introduced to georg who is played by Ulrich Muir or Tim Roth if you're watching the remake as well as Anna or Anne who is played by Suzanne Lothar or Naomi Watts and they're playing this game where you have to identify the opera by the artist (laughs) and the name to which I say this is how you know they be uppity class bitches I wrote in my notes what the fuck is this (laughs) I mean it's basically guess the guess the song but it's it's cueing us right away to the class that we are dealing with at Mm -hmm. at this thing because yes opera can be enjoyed by anyone at any time and in fact i think the the um art of opera has really come a long way to include so many um persons that that haven't been included up to this date but Mm -hmm. it is something that is a shorthand clue that if someone is guessing the operas they're well versed and they must have money Mm -hmm. especially in austria yeah. So they also have their preteen son, who we're going to call Georgie or little Georgie or the son, whatever we want. And he is played by Stefan Klepsinski or Devin Gearhart. So we this goes on for quite some time. This sh- movie is not afraid of, I don't want to say glacial or lethargic pacing, but a Hanukkah will keep 
rolling for minutes at a time if he likes the shot or if it's trying to achieve a specific impact. And that includes when the music abruptly changes into basically non-diegetic screaming metal music. And I love that this basically cues you to say, hey... This is exactly what's going to happen in the film. These uppity bitches are living their best opera life, and then screaming metal music is about to come in and ruin everything. The song is called Bonehead by the American band Naked City, and that was very much done on purpose. Uh, uh, those Americans. A, there's a second <laughs> song that is used by them in the film called da da da, da Hellraiser. Ooh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I did try to Shazam this, but my Shazam was not having it. <laughs> So I'm going to bring in Lane right off the top here. She writes, the opening sequence establishes the correspondence between the diegeses and the non-diegeses, aka the world of the film and then the outside world of the film, as in the viewing audience's world. So they're still listening to opera in the world of the film, and we're hearing the heavy metal music as viewers. And so this expands the diegetic world to include the audience. So basically, we're already being made complicit and aware that we're watching this movie, but we're watching their movie. And they don't know they're in a movie. No, of course. They're they're living their best fictitious lives. <laughs> so the music stops suddenly as the family pulls up outside a gated house. It's quite large. It's beautiful. And they're gently chastising their neighbors, Fred, who is played by Christoph Banzer or Boyd Gaines, as well as Eva. This is their neighbors, and they're anticipating a golf game the next day. So they're basically saying, hey, no cheating. You're out there playing with the clubs. But they notice that the interaction is a little bit odd. And there's two laddies who are there with them. And then Georgie, the son, notices that Sissy, the daughter of the couple, is not there. And that's odd. I, I don't think it's odd at all. If I am on vacation, I want the children away from me. They are in the house. <laughs> oh my god. They that's are. I, I am sorry, y'all. I, no, I... <laughs> I am pro children, but not on my vacation. Both Joe and I agree with you. But these are all parents here. They're, yeah. they, 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 they're like reveling in the children. Children they have they're like oh my god look at these kids i have children isn't it amazing if i named my child sissy she's already insufferable she belongs in the house <laughs> <laughs> or down at the boat putting it together like get that sail up girl yes <laughs> <laughs> so the family proceeds on to their own gated community and then they begin to unpack and people who have never seen this film might find it a little bit confronting that hanukkah just positions the camera and then we're hearing action occur off frame but he doesn't move to show us what's going on so a lot of the time again this is to remind us hey you're watching a movie just because there's action happening elsewhere doesn't mean i'm going to show it to you but i like that it's also training us like we're mm -hmm. becoming accustomed to his style well because it's also anticipating the lack of on-screen violence because so much we will yeah. hear what's going on and when, when people die or when someone gets hurt but we're not going to see it very often i mean e e mm -hmm. even when it's it's not necessarily in frame but like when you're first gets hit by the golf club you don't see it make contact with him you just hear it yep you see just a reflection in the mirror of, mm -hmm. uh, of someone approaching and again this is something that he really explored for the first time in a huge way in benny's video um the murder that's committed in that film um again which is done by the actor arno frisch from uh this film who's playing paul yep. i'm gonna get them right for the rest of the movie i swear um, and so to that end um when 
he murders a, a little girl with a um, gun that's used to kill livestock. Um, it's done just below screen uh, where he harms her and then it's done off screen where he finishes her off. But there's a large amount of time that, that goes in between where that poor girl is, is suffering and we are being exposed to it with nothing on screen. That camera does not move. Um, mm. And I think it's something that is incredibly difficult and powerful and he really explored it there. I think he perfects it here. Mm. Right. It was the mm. test run. Yeah. Absolutely. That's interesting. I like that. Honestly, I find all of this technically so fascinating, but also so effective. Like, I'm watching the film, I'm cognizant of what he's doing, but I'm also trying to rebel against it because my Hollywood brain is still very active. And I love being confronted with that. Like, I'll get lulled into something and i'll want to see something and then he's pushing and pulling me back but that's but that i think uh, to pay back on what you said earlier joe it's making you aware i am watching a film and Mm -hmm. i think for us who like are you know film buffs obsessives like you know we watch a lot of movies that's that's something that we're (laughs) cognizant of in the fact but again if you if uh, for a general audience member to watch this a casual viewer yes thank you casual viewer i almost envision them like craning their heads to try to look around the corner of the doorway 100 <laughs> percent. yeah and i think that's probably where a lot of the frustration comes from because going to see what we call cinema as entertainment and then being repeatedly confronted hey this isn't a movie stop enjoying it don't get lulled into fantasy like what am I paying you for then? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Fred, the neighbor, as well as Paul, who, as we've said repeatedly, is played by Arno Frisch or Michael Pitt, they arrive to help put the boat in the water. So they're down there. Anna is making her salad, and she's trying to convince her friend Fanny to come for the weekend. So she's talking on the phone in the kitchen. And then the other laddie, Peter, who is played by Frank Gehring or Brady Corbett, comes looking for eggs and we have this whole big almost comedic farce about him give me the eggs do you need a package oops i dropped them oh it's okay don't worry and it's very much a comedy of manners and i'm glad it was anna that was in the kitchen because otherwise it's just the opening to pretty much every film from missionaryboys.com one of trace's (laughs) favorites <laughs> missionary boy i will have you know that i do not i've only seen like two missionary boys videos in my entire life there's mm. something weird i don't know i i, I that's weird to me <laughs> um for, for non-gay listeners that is a porn website so don't google it if you're at work unless we're going for the sponsorship guys what do you think it is a porn website in which young ish mormon missionaries have ish sex being the emphasis yeah i mean they're of age but they're not they're, they're all twinks, but they all proceed to fuck each other. And also they're um, whoever elders. the leaders of Mormon missionary. Yeah, yeah there you go. Elders. <laughs> <laughs> but Peter is so interesting of a character because, you know, very specifically a, a kind of a cherubic face. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a genuine sweetness when we first meet him. And, and Anna in both versions has a, has a warmth there uh, that she's conveying to him. And even after the first batch of broken eggs, she, she kind of laughs it off. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, but 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 there is like yes, you're right. It's very warm the first time, and it's okay the second time when she's about to wrap him up. But because that's also when he knocks the phone in the sink, and yes. it starts to get more tense. I mean, I find all of this very cringe. Not in a way where I'm like, oh, I hate it. It's just cringe because it's this mm-hmm. awkward social encounter with a stranger. A hundred percent. And the knocking the phone in the sink is kind of one of the areas where it's very, very different between the American version and the Austrian version. In the Austrian version, it does kind of seem like it could have been a haphazard it accident. Been an accident. Yeah. But in the American version, it is very clear that this is being done maliciously. Mm. Yeah, you fully see him wait for her to turn her back and then he knocks it in interesting so i'm curious justin when you said it feels like she has a bit of warmth to him because i do think we need to talk about some of the body image issues (laughs) that we're going to encounter with peter he is a little bit more plump I would I mean, even argue in the Austrian version compared to the North American version, like uh, Hall is the more traditionally svelte and masculine and muscular, but like neither of these characters are actually fat. No, and it's and it's a part again when we were talking about the toxic masculinity. We have Paul calling Peter Tubby for more than half of the film, um, yeah. and is doing that to to put this character down to let them know that you are lesser than I. Mm-hmm. The, the use of jelly rolls too i was just like yeah Ugh. like it's it's not a pleasant image but yeah it, it's very much like the bridget jones effect where you're like but he's not fat yeah <laughs> but also remind reminder we're in austria jelly rolls are a pretty consistent part of you know day-to-day delicacies you can get them at most bakeries oh <laughs> <laughs> there's something we want <laughs> fair just maybe not on our bodies Ooh, aka yeah. nope, i like a couple jelly rolls on a fella hey boys <laughs> but yeah i mean it starts here but, but before we start diverting this to anna yeah so she hears the dog barking while she's in the the kitchen proper and she rounds the corner and discovers both boys inside with the dog on the other side barking at them and this immediately is red flag central but she's still trying to be polite well she tells them rolfie is trying to play a game to which he says a funny game and Mm -hmm. i just feel fully like leonardo dicaprio (laughs) gif pointing at the screen i'm like that's the title you did it good job but it's funny because they look to her as well what kind of game is this this isn't funny and you just if you know where this is going this is already part of their performance. Well, but that's okay, honestly though. So like, I I do find this movie very darkly comedic up to mm-hmm. a point. I sure. I even think there are parts, even in the final moments, and I'm kind of like, <laughs> okay. But it, 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 I do think the film balances the shift in tones because it's never a straightforward comedy. But there are, parts, especially on a rewatch when you're watching, you're kind of like you pick up on more of these little subtle, darkly comedic things Hanukkah in, injects here. But mm-hmm. I do think it juggles the back and forth. Well, do I want to even say back and forth because I feel like it kind of gets funny, but then we're in like a 30 minute period of absolute misery. Yeah. It definitely starts funny. It juggles the shift very well. There we go. There we go. (laughs) So we're still in the early parts. Uh, This is when Paul observes Georg's expensive golf clubs, and he asks if he can test drive one of them. And throughout all of this, we're hearing Rolfi, or Lucky, if you're watching the American version. Can we talk about how Rolfi is a German shepherd and Lucky is a golden retriever? Like, how German versus (laughs) American can you get? Like, that was a statement in and of itself. (sighs) 
how dare we kill the German shepherd? It's so much cuter. Oh, there's Americans and their stupid golden retrievers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so we cut down to the water and we're watching as Georg and little Georgie are yelling at Rolfi to shut the fuck up because the barking keeps going. And then it stops abruptly. Yeah, but we're staying on this boat the whole fucking time. Exactly. Yeah. So we're putting it up, blah, blah, blah. This is when Georg leaves to investigate what has happened with Rolfi. And then we go back to the house as oh, Anna collects Before the we go club. back to the house, Chekhov's knife. Mm, Chekhov's yes. knife, Chekhov's <laughs> knife. Chilling on the boat. Just chilling, hanging out, ready to be used. Yep. So Anna comes back inside and she basically, this is where her demeanor really changes. She's tired of this. They're still here. They're just kind of lurking. But her attitude does seem relatively aggressive relatively quickly. So it escalates. And if you're a first time viewer like me, you might be wondering, okay, well, what exactly sets her off here? And it, it's interesting because in some ways you almost side with Peter and Paul for a moment where they're, <laughs> you know, hey, what's changed? How come you're suddenly so unhappy with us? Is yeah. it something we did? Anna, you're acting weird and outraged for no particular reason. Gaslighting! Mm -hmm. <laughs> At its finest. And frankly, it's the way that Hanukkah shoots this is so smart because when we hand the club back to Anna, um, it, it's facing downwards. She never sees the base of it. But then there's a shot from the inside. There's clearly something on it. There's a yeah. shine that's only on part of the club. Mm -hmm. um, and it's here where you then hear Paul call Peter by the name Tom if you're yes. paying attention. And if you are not uncomfortable yet, that is where your skin starts to crawl. Well, mm -hmm. and so at, what Hanukkah says about that. So he says, you know, Paul and Peter are the classic comedy duo. Ha ha ha. Um, <laughs> God. <laughs> that's, that's why they have a variety of names. These are all stereotypes that we know, and they're presented here as stereotypes too. They aren't naturalistic characters. They act realistically, but the framework in which they function is one you see through very quickly. One is intelligent. The other is dumber. But the dumb one is fatter, so he's stronger physically, and so on. They're, they're all these stereotypes. That's why he gives them different names. You know, Tom and Jerry, Beavis and Butthead. Um, I think there's one other one they use. The challenge Hanukkah posed to himself, though, when using these cliches, was to use them in such a way that the story remains plausible. But he's also playing with the audience here, because he says, with stereotypes, people usually switch their brains off. I know this already. I don't have to think. I don't have to be engaged. So it, th their presence here as stereotypes immediately is meant to, I guess, disarm you or make you... Um, well, we think we know them. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And even the names, right? Like Peter and Paul. They're so innocuous. They're just so average every day. They're nondescript. Even though if you look at these boys, they're very much like how Justin <laughs> described himself in his introduction. <laughs> they're so Aryan. Mm -hmm. But like... I mean, we haven't even commented on the fact that they're also wearing almost exclusively white, including white gloves in the middle of what we're told is a sweltering hot weekend. Ooh, but those short shorts on Paul. Oh, he looks great. And I was frustrated <laughs> when we get Michael Pitt in regular length shorts. I was oh. like, no, come on. Give me, give me those short shorts. You know, I have heard he's difficult to work with, though. So I wonder if he didn't want to wear the short shorts or... Or maybe if they thought that wasn't American enough, because it's it is. It's an American thing. Yeah. OK, so Anna puts the club away, but the boys continue to refuse to leave and she gets upset. Georg ends up coming in and he's just caught in the middle of this. She's very frustrated. She wants him to step in 
and he does not back her up. So she just says, fine, fucker, you deal with it. And she walks away. Which is bullshit. He says, I can't mediate a matter I know nothing about. I have been married for four months. And even I know to take my husband's side. Exactly. I take my husband's (laughs) side first and I ask questions later. That's how you do it. It's in your house. So immediately you can be like, I don't know what happened to you, but please get the fuck out. I think this is all done in a single take, too. It is. Yeah. In fact, the cut comes when Paul hits Georg with the club. And I will say this was one of the only critiques I had really of this film is the way that it's shot and edited makes it look like Georg gets it either in the back of the head or across Mm -hmm. the back. And then when we see him fall, it takes a moment to understand, oh, he apparently got hit in the leg. And broke his leg, I think. Yeah, because he bleeds. The the blood kind of comes through the the pants as the film progresses. Um, Mm -hmm. Just a quick correction. It's actually Peter that goes for the knees. And that's because Paul got to try the clubs earlier when he used them on the dog. Mm. But we're about to find out what he used it on. (laughs) (laughs) So this, we should also note that a child does get hit here. So little Georgie gets smacked around a little bit. So at this point now, the the home invasion, quote unquote, proper begins because uh, the boys have made it clear they're not leaving. They encourage mother and son to get a chair to help Georg out because he's not going to be moving very easily. <laughs> and when asked why they're doing this... I feel like everybody's going to go, ooh, it's kind of like the strangers. <laughs> but Paul and Peter offer, why not? As yeah. their explanation. Which, dun, is fu- dun, dun. which is funny because the American remake would have come out the year before The Strangers came out. Yeah. So this is when we play our... I don't know how many games we play with this poor family throughout the course of the film, but we're essentially playing hot and cold to find the body of poor Rolfie. Well, first we play a game where we ask about the golf ball and why, what it is and, and why it's Ugh. there. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, I loathe golf. Shout out to my stepdad, Barry, for never forcing me to play after that one time. True ally. Um, but even I know that's a golf ball. None of them answer. And so it is revealed that the reason he still has the golf ball that he was given to go outside and hit is because he used the club on something else. Mm-hmm. Enter yeah. hotter, colder. <laughs> yeah. So... so... Anna goes out to try to find the body, and as she's looking, this is our first breaking of the fourth wall as Paul looks at the camera and gives us a bit of a smirk. Like, isn't this a delightful thing? Yep. And this is too, so um, again, film historian uh, Alexander Horwath compares this film, and this moment specifically, like where you start to realize, oh, this film... Or at least this character knows he's in a film and that he's mm-hmm. uh, uh, has an audience. But he talks about how a lot of films in this period of the 90s were doing very similar things, albeit in very different ways. Bringing up films like The Matrix, The Truman Show, The Game, Fight Club. But he singles out Scream as being the most closely related to funny games. Hmm. That's interesting. But in a very different way. Because he yeah. says Scream is still a very enjoyable, fun movie, but it's still dissecting the way we absorb a horror film and playing with the ways that with our expectations of a horror film but albeit again in a very enjoyable viewing experience which this one is not yeah i don't know i i think it's really important that we distinguish between meta and self-reflexive because i think scream is very meta it's aware of the conventions and it tries to situate itself almost in the real world but it's still a piece of pure entertainment but you don't think that meta and self-reflexivity are still in the same like piece of the pie 
I think so. I just, I want to make sure that people don't say, oh, they're one and the same. And oh, I think yeah, one's, no, no, no. one's a pie and one's a quiche. I mean, frankly, it's it's the same crust, but it's very different contents. There I think go. what we're seeing here is very clearly um, the first time, and again, this is about a, a third of the way into the film at the 30 minute mark, where the fourth wall is broken, where we have a wink and it's cluing us in that we are in their universe, that they are aware <laughs> of, well, of us. And again, the the opening music kind of, kind of teed it to us but here's where we really know and it's supposed to make us feel uncomfortable because now we're yeah. a part of this we're complicit as viewers well but apparently one what something at least again in the 90s and people were watching this this first moment of breaking the fourth wall people weren't sure they were like wait did he break the fourth wall right did i just see this yeah is peter like behind the camera is that what's going on here so th- this was still inspiring confusion in viewers Good. Hmm, Interesting. I'm going to bring Lane back in here because I thought this next point that she makes is it helped me to wrap my head around some of the things I felt during the film. So she says the audience tends to identify with the victims automatically, particularly in thrillers, home invasions, horror films, and so on. Yet by having the killers constantly looking into the camera, winking and addressing the audience directly, Hanukkah denies the audience this kind of easy solution, and we end up realizing that we're the observers and not the victims, and that we're actually aligned not with the showbers, but we're actually playing the game with the wrong side. We are aligned with the killers, and that's the complicity that you're talking about, Justin. Paul is winking at us right he's saying hey we're in on this together because we both understand what's going on and then lane continues this is why the first time paul directs his gaze to the camera and winks at us it comes at the point where he's making anna play this hot and cold game so we're we're made to be a part of this sadistic intrigue and then it just goes from there and this is done incredibly purposefully. There's a, a another, if I can bring in a Hanukkah quote, um, Michal says, I always try to take my viewers seriously. If you take someone seriously, you can tell them unpleasant things that upset all of us. In cinema, <laughs> the viewer is always the director's victim. But... Okay, but Whoa. that's really interesting, though. So he's saying, I take my viewers seriously, whereas the people that didn't like this movie thought did not think they were taking them seriously. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Michal Hanukkah is genuinely saying, I am acknowledging you as an audience. I'm acknowledging that you exist and I am asking you to be taken seriously by me with the film I'm presenting to you. Um, yes, it's tongue in cheek. And yes, as we've said, there's a comedy of sorts that's up to this point. Um, but for what his goals were, that's what he was trying to achieve as of here. Well, I think also the people, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not saying this to anybody who is listening who did not enjoy watching this movie or had difficulty with it. I'm not trying to talk down to you. But I think part of the thing that we struggle with implicitly is that if we don't like something, we tend to equate it with badness. So it's like, oh, well, I didn't like what this was doing to me. Like, I didn't enjoy being made complicit in these violent acts, and therefore I don't like this movie. Well, I I think that's part of it, and it's also, I mean, look, people don't like having a mirror held up to them whether they realize it's happening or not, but I also think that I can see someone walking out of this being like, I didn't get it. I That was very, I don't understand what the film was trying to do, and I feel oh, like okay. there is an, mm-hmm. an instinct in people 
to say I didn't like that. That's bad because I didn't get it. But they're mm. we don't like to admit, and it's not saying oh you're stupid, but we I feel like we feel stupid if we don't get something that we see others are getting, and we have an right. inclination to be like that's bad, and then like shut the door on it because you don't want to have that conversation to try to learn it. Which is part of the reason why we do things like podcasts or have conversations after the film, right? What did you think of it is such a great open line because you can listen to somebody else's opinion and say, okay, did I think the same thing or did I have a different reading of it? And then that's where the enriching process of watching a film comes from. Well, and, you know, that's bad and it wasn't for me are two very different things. Yes. 100%. Okay, so... I think one of the other things that might be frustrating to viewers, particularly in our arena, folks who watch horror films or thrillers, is that it sometimes feels like Anna and Georg don't always do the thing that we would want them to do to try to get out of the situation. So case in point, when their neighbors, Gerda, who is played by Doris Huntsman, Doris Huntsman, uh, or... Betsy, if you're watching the American version, who is played by Siobhan Fallon Hogan. Queer icon alert! Siobhan Fallon Hogan is one of those amazing character actresses um, who has an SNL alum, but she's been in Striptease, Dancer in the Dark, Baby Mama, Golden Girls. I mean, she's amazing. I love that she's in this. Oh! Oh, she's, uh, she, uh, sorry, I, I had to look her up to be like, who is this? Yes, Men in Black, uh, Egra's wife. Yep. Sure, <laughs> yeah. Just an astounding character actress. And if I may spoil who the gentleman is in the U.S. version, that's mm-hmm. Robert Lapone, as in Patty Lapone's brother, who's best known for playing James the Apostle in Jesus Christ Superstar. And in the American version, the third person in the boat? Uh-huh. Michal Hanukkah's wife doing a cameo and not talking. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So basically, these neighbors have arrived to kind of say, hey, you know, we saw that you were unpacking. How long are you going to be here for? And Anna just plays along. She introduces Paul and says, hi, he's staying with the other neighbors that we met earlier. And she doesn't try to alert them. But it's because Paul has already slyly, covertly said, I know what you're thinking. Don't do it because it'll just get you into more trouble. That's I mean, I get why someone might be frustrated because, yeah, in a typical American, more action oriented horror film, we would have something like that happen. But Mm -hmm. I think realistically, uh, I think playing it safe is what a lot of people would actually try to do here, especially if you have a young child that's being held captive inside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a husband who has been effectively disabled, like they can't just get up and run away anymore. Yeah, women can't do anything. So what is she going to do? <laughs> My God. Okay, so Anna returns with Paul back to the house and she tries to make the argument like, okay, so you've had your fun, but really you need to leave because my friend Fanny and her husband are going to be arriving in under two hours. And this is when Paul calls her out for lying. That's not part of the game. You can't get away with that. (laughs) I just like, again, but you're also kind of like, wait, what game are you talking about? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And what are the rules that only you two seem to understand? And it's just the rules of cinema. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mother and son end up moving Georg to the couch, and Anna tries to make a break for it in some of the the confusion, and this does not work. Uh, She ends up getting tossed onto Georg's wound. He also gets stepped on by Peter, and we get another round of blows on both mother and son. It's a big old mess. 
And then, of course, we have, they're like, why are you doing this? And Paul goes to Peter, Fatty, why are you doing this? <laughs> and he just shrugs. It's not even a because you were home. It's a shrug. It's mm-hmm. it's brilliant. Um, but then they go forward to talk about it a little more. And we learn that, that wait for it, wait for it. Peter has divorced parents and mm-hmm. an overbearing mother. Yeah, and he might be a queer, and he might be a crook, and they might be drug addicts. It's like, whatever you want to believe, audience. I have a divorced parents and an overbearing mother. I only turned out queer. I'm not a crook. It's only half right for me. Well, but you are a drug addict, right? Oh, that times depends. You're still yeah, in the okay. first half of your life. Um, <laughs> we'll but, but but that's the thing. I mean, like, I don't believe any of this. I don't think any no. of this is true. I mean, given this film, I just think they are blank slates. Like, that's all they are. The only thing I do believe is when he says that he's a spoiled little shithead (laughs) yeah i mean their comfort level around this kind of house these kinds of people even their forced politeness to me tells tells me that they are educated right like they probably are wealthy because they they can negotiate their surroundings with ease i don't know like i love that the movie as you said, Trace, there are blank slates, so we can project whatever we want onto them. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, nothing and everything satisfies. With Trace saying that they're a blank slate, and with you saying that that they are um, a... No, I'm... Blah, 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 blah. <clears throat> Let me dial that back. With them being connected to the audience in a way that, whether the audience likes it or, n- or not, they then become a, a cipher for Michal Hanukkah's point, which is that violence... Um, is something that is, you know, a part of of media. Um, Here's a quote from him, um, very specifically that we are all aware that we are consumers of violence. No one is so stupid that they don't know when watching such a film and when watching a violent film that they want to consume violence. It's a matter of knowing (laughs) this and it's a matter of having the viewer perceive what it is that they usually consume. And as such, they're becoming a cipher for the audience, whether we want them to be or not. Well, that's what I, I'm sorry. When you say cipher for the audience, what does cipher for the audience mean? It's like a proxy or a stand-in. Yep. So, so we are we are having these two characters, which are blank slates, which you know they change who and what they are every moment of the film. Right. This is the audience. The audience came to see a violent film. Trace, mm-hmm. you said that you wanted to see this violent film. You yeah. took your poor sister and their friends to see what was you know, projected as a violent film. Everyone is coming into this film expecting violence. What they're not expecting is for the violence to be perpetuated by somebody that's in cahoots with the audience. That's what makes this so disarming. That's what makes this so unnerving. Well, because normally the protagonist is your audience proxy. And maybe that's where we get boring protagonist syndrome a lot, right? Because it's like, oh, they're not a character because they're meant to be an audience stand-in. Whereas in Mm -hmm. this film... We that's what the killers are, but we I don't know, like I, it might take various audience members different points like, at different times in the film to figure that out. Yeah. And and obviously that may not be consistent even, right? Like you may find yourself aligning with Peter and Paul at certain points and then saying, no, I need to be forming a connection with Anna and Georg because those are the victims. But the reality is, is that we're constantly repositioned by Hanukkah to be like, nope, sorry, you got to go with the killers. You got to go with these bratty boys. Because, because I want, I wonder, 
And I'm sure I was one of these people too. If I, I wouldn't call this a slow movie, but it's not a very action heavy movie. Mm-hmm. If there are times when people are like, Peter, Paul, just kill one of them. Come on, do it. That's, right. that's the point Hanukkah is trying to make. <laughs> yeah. you, you got there on your own. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, particularly when Paul then introduces the bet with the family, right? So we're all sitting on the couches opposing each other. And Paul says, I bet by 9 a.m., a.k.a. 12 hours from now, that all three of you will be kaput. Kaput. <laughs> yeah. And then he turns to us and asks us if we think the family has a chance of winning and who we're going to bet on. Well, I, I, cause he asked a couple of questions. But he's like, you're on, you're on their side, aren't you? <laughs> mm-hmm. As if we, we might say no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yet. And yet Hanukkah is, is guessing that most Americans, or at least some of us, will be on the side of these the terrorizers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, finish them off. Do it now. Get it over with. Yep. Okay. So Paul does more weight comments with Peter. And uh, he also then uses this as an introduction to note how good Anna looks. How she's got this great figure. No jelly rolls here. So he introduces a new game called Kitten in a Bag or Cat in the Bag, if you're watching the U.S. remake. And this is where we put little Georgie's head in a pillowcase, a.k.a. the cover art of the 1997 version. (laughs) And then he gets Georg to ask his wife to undress. Since now the kid cannot see, mom can strip for you and me. Oh, I do love the rhymes. (laughs) It's a game. (laughs) So one of the interesting differences between the two versions is that in the Austrian version, she wears a slip that she'll wear for most of the film. So she mm. her midriff is covered in stuff, whereas Naomi Watts is just wearing a bra and panties for a large portion of the next bit of the film. And I did wonder if this is uh, Hanukkah being like, oh, Americans, you're going to want a little bit more TNA, aren't you? <laughs> or if it's Naomi Watts. Are you ready for this? It was actually Naomi Watts. I was going to yes! okay. So go. they, they were discussing, and it was her suggestion that it would disarm the character to have her strip further down and have it happen a little bit earlier. Um, yeah. I actually watched both films simultaneously, something I would not recommend. <laughs> and Sounds it, distracting. It, it, uh-huh. um, but, it, you know, there is so much overlap in and you know very time specific shots throughout the entire film it's it's actually mm-hmm. brilliant and beautiful to behold however um Naomi Watts's performance here just far 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 uh, eclipses her Austrian counterpart and oh. again it happens a little bit earlier and it happens in a way that she is being forced to you know more fully undress uh, a, a little bit sooner and, and and that's why whenever again I I didn't rewatch the remake so I haven't seen it since 2007 when I saw it in theaters but Whenever people ask me well, which one's better, I was I I'm always kind of like uh, I don't I don't know if I would really classify each one as one is better than the other, but yeah. I do prefer the American one if only because I'm familiar with the actors already and I'll watch Naomi Watts fucking do sweep anything. the floor. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> I think she's more expressive. There's there's something that makes her easier to relate to. There's a a slightly stronger emotional vulnerability, but I don't want to make it sound like I'm coming down on the Austrian actress because I think she's also really good. It just does feel like a slightly more reserved performance well i think it's reserved until georgie dies because i think lothar like once georgie dies i think lothar's performance like just like skyrockets in this film so suzanne suzanne lothar um when she was making the film they actually forced her 
to cry prior to the takes being had. Uh, so she was already puffy and so exactly. on. Exactly. We're seeing, yeah. I mean, I hate to compare it to something so abusive, but but the Shelley Duvall effect where we're seeing somebody who is yeah. just broken down. And it's something that is just incredibly difficult because this is something that did time and time again. One of the scenes in particular, 28 takes. No. 28 <sighs> takes Lothar had to do and it was fully trained on her that entire time and they had her mm-hmm. crying before the cameras even rolled 28 times. You're watching a woman, whether it's the, the character or the actress, who's just broken at that point. Yeah. Oof. Yikers. Whereas Naomi Watts is like, I'll take off my dress. I'll cry on point. <laughs> I'll, I'll say this. This is my favorite Watts performance and knowing Ooh. that she had something to study prior to this and she just allowed that to be a launch pad to take it somewhere else mm-hmm. uh, I think Mulholland Drive and The Impossible are a close second and third but I think she is revelatory here it's a lot yeah I think that's part of the other reason that people may ultimately not like this movie is because it's just so fucking hard to watch her go through this yeah. in either version mm-hmm Okay, so Anna's legs get taped up so that she can't move, and this is where little Georgie makes a run for it. So he runs upstairs, out onto the roof, and out the gate, or around the gate. I'm impressed. I didn't learn how to do that until I was a closeted teenager, so three cheers for Georgie. Man, <laughs> but man, he could not climb that damn gate, and I was just like, no. dude, like, upper body strength, come on! <laughs> just, <laughs> he can probably slide through one of the slits, like, it's fine! <laughs> And also, this is a large property. There are plenty of other areas to go, including we know the water he could have swum oh. in. Silly boy. Mm. So the moment when he runs into the lawn and all the lights, <laughs> the motion-censored lights activate, yeah. I was like, oh, dude. <laughs> oh, the first it's time I saw this, my, my, I stopped breathing. And it was such, such an incredible moment. I mean, it's literal deer in the headlights. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, not to like, go back all the way back to Friday the 13th Part 2, but, you know, there, there's that... that scene in the movie where it's like oh like you know you can see jason running up from from the window and it's really scary because the main character doesn't see it yet we have so many shots of paul just like slowly making his way towards where georgie is in this yard yeah because he he knows he doesn't have to hurry because georgie is running to a house filled with dead people yeah and frankly, this is yet another game. I mean, this is a game of, of hide-and-seek that, that Paul is playing with Georgie. Uh, and it's incredibly tense. I mean, if there's anything that we can say to people that might not have watched this film up to this point, if you want a really, really great chase scene like you would get in a slasher film, this is it. It's done in an mm-hmm. incredibly unique way. Again, with the camera being focused at many, many times in one area while the characters are moving around. But it is immense tension it's also a child yeah and this child isn't he's not bratty but he's not you know child actor hollywood perfect or anything like this child feels like you plucked him off the street and threw him in front of the camera well and it's he's already been like he's already lost some of his dignity by this point because before he ran off he pissed himself yeah and he's also tracking water through the house as well oh my god (laughs) Yes, that's actually a great moment, too, because he's hiding in his crouch and he sees his wet footprints. And again, me just watching this like, ah, stop. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is where we're actively talking to the screen, but I think not in the way that Hanukkah would want us to. Right. So part of this is that we do need to cut back to the house where Anna and Georg are still tied up uh, so that Peter can tell us that they're not going to kill them yet because of the entertainment value. 
Yeah, we all be deprived of our pleasure. Peter's <laughs> also um, watching TV and, and watching the news in this sequence. And again, that's something that's really, really a large portion of uh, Michael Hanukkah's films. The commentary, films. right? Up, up until the, the aughts. I mean, what what he follows Funny Game with is, is Code Unknown uh, and followed by Cachet. And um, uh, in Code Unknown, I mean, there's just a remarkable sequence where Juliette Binoche is watching the television, watching the news, which is reporting on um, some really real-life terrors that had happened in France when she hears someone being um, physically or sexually assaulted she she mutes the news for a moment and then uh, hears it and then puts the news back up and the volume up and continues to go about ironing it, it, uh, Michael Hanukkah really wants us to look at our relationship not just with with media but with news and how we are consuming the the news which up until that point was predominantly you know visually through uh, the actual news programs and and it's something that is seen time and time again throughout his work so um including it here in the sequence uh with with peter uh is very very much going to one of his kind of or uh, manifestos as a director. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and some of the things that Peter's watching, we see imagery of like a violent natural disaster, like there's some kind of flooding or, or a hurricane. And then there's also, uh, we settle on Formula One and there's like a big fiery crash. So uh, back at the neighbor's house, this is where little Georgie does briefly see Sissy's dead body. I think it's Sissy because it the is. shoes look small. Yeah, no, it, it, we only see her feet and like some blood splatter like in the doorway of the bathroom. But yeah, I, I, I would wager that as a child's foot. It, it is unquestionable. Again, having watched this multiple times yeah. uh, recently, that is unquestionably Sissy and made to be a moment where Georgie is forced to look at mortality, which for a child, you know, that is the ultimate taboo in films is killing the dog killing the child um, mm -hmm. we've already killed the dog and this is Georgie being made aware of his own mortality he's yeah. about to be made aware of it um, very seriously in a bit <laughs> oh boy <laughs> Yeah, so he does end up picking up an unloaded rifle. He, of course, does not realize that there's no ammunition. So he does actively try to shoot Paul, but of course it doesn't work. So then we come back to the house, and uh, this is where Paul gives ammunition to Peter to load the gun. And then we follow Paul into the kitchen as he starts to make some food. And we hear the gun go off. Well, we hear like a lot of scuffling. And yeah, we just, uh, th this is one of my favorite shots in the film. I mean, we're about to get to my favorite shot in the film. But this is, again, like you're just hearing, you're hearing it. And even when the gun goes off, though, we don't cut to see what's happened. We stay with him as he finishes mm -hmm. making this fucking sandwich. <laughs> yep. And it's not until he's done making his food that we cut, not to the devastation, not mm -mm. to our family, not even to our killers. We cut nope. back to the TV. The TV, We yeah. cut back to the blood dripping down in front of Formula One racing. <laughs> yeah, we do hear Paul berate Peter for having uh, an itchy trigger finger. And then the two basically say, okay, I think we're going to go. So we don't even see them leave. They just leave off camera as we continue to hold on the TV. And so what ha what we have next now is a 10 minute long single take sequence that mm -hmm. I had completely forgotten about. Um, this is. It's everything. It's brilliant. <laughs> this is the moment where I was like, I'm enjoying this in quotation marks. And then we get to this scene. And when you realize we're not cutting and even just the the pacing it just slows down completely there's i think a full minute where we're just trained on anna 
and she's not moving at all. Like she's just perched forward on this chair silently yeah. not reacting a full well, 60 seconds because they are both dealing with the the, like, the grief and shock that they've been through with just seeing their son get killed and so mm-hmm. and very specifically when it's when it cuts away from the tv and we see the room anna is all we see so it actually takes the viewer maybe even a moment to wonder is it georg or georgie because neither uh-huh. of them are, in, are are directly you know visible in frame right Obviously, the glow of the Formula One racing TV will indicate that Georgie's body is is sprawled out in front of the TV while the mm-hmm. racing still plays and while Anna sits and just marinades in her current situation. So this this is Hanukkah's uh, uh, thought process behind this. So he intentionally filmed it in a wide shot because in his words, you can't film a person who's suffering that intensely as a close up. It becomes obscene or even pornographic. You cannot do that. The more real it is, the more pornographic it is. Which is funny. I would have thought he'd want that. No, but that's not that's not him. That's not what he is trying to do with his films. Again, he called out Spielberg of all people for doing just that in Hmm. Schindler's List. But look at the poster for the remake, which Mm -hmm. is just Naomi Watts' face in extreme close-up looking real upset. (laughs) Which he has gone on to say he had nothing to do with the marketing Uh, and he does not care for that that makes sense which if you look at what actually is used as the as the you know the release cover it's the bloody golf club with the the white gloves yes um you mm-hmm. know which is a little bit more akin to what he feels that americans will want to know that they're about to watch a violent film well right. they shot this take three times the first take was quote unquote very good but hanukkah suggested one more but two minutes in he could see that uh, both actors had run out of steam so he gave him a break told him to go to the dressing room and he laid out in detail he basically storyboarded for them but without actually storyboarding it um and then he said you know what? i'm gonna go downstairs y'all take all the time you need uh we will wait and come when you're ready so he goes to the crew and he's like hey you know they're gonna come down when they're ready it might be five minutes it might be five hours i don't know but they came down they did it and that was the take they used and that's for the 1997 version or yes the yes sorry the, the 97 version i, I don't okay. know about having the american one i'm sure naomi watts crushed that on a single take <laughs> sure yes. they, they did do multiple takes with naomi watts but um they again still used an early take because she killed it um, and I mean, it's in both versions, you know, Anna eventually still tied up, hops over to turn off the TV while her child is, is laying lifeless behind her. It's, it's so upsetting. You know, I actually, I figured out another reason why I was invited on for this episode, um, because like Joe, I am pro child death in horror movies sure, yes. and not because I'm anti-children, but I am pro breaking taboos. And that is one of the yeah. ultimate taboos, but it doesn't make this any less devastating because we are forced to hear Anna sitting in silence before she speaks. And she speaks so clearly and concisely to Georg to her off-screen husband and she goes over to him and that is when Georg breaks down. Yeah. Yeah. Oof, oof, and oof. like it's already devastating. It's so emotionally raw and then when they come together, I think in part it's like they they realize that they're alive, they're maybe safe because the boys have gone, but obviously the immensity of what they've lost is only now just hitting them and the fact that we have not cut, the fact that we are only now just realizing that Georg is still alive, he just sits up and it's like, okay, let's wallow in this. And 
it's just something we never fucking see we on don't screen. get enough opportunities to <laughs> grieve in horror we just don't and this is one of the best the sequence is over 10 minutes long it's a single take and it's saddening on a completely other level and i want to say if you've only watched the american version do yourself a favor and watch the austrian version for this scene because what Ulrich muher does is yeah absolutely incredible mm-hmm. i mean he is sobbing at a level that i don't think i've seen many male actors be able to achieve i mean he's he's yeah. keening it's the yeah. and it's complete it's just a it's a pernicious performance it completely mm-hmm. disarms the viewer and to be again discussing toxic masculinity this is the opposite of that like a man exactly. showing emotion so showing vulnerability and another reason why we don't get a close-up is because so on top of the pornographic the obscene part that hanukkah is talking about he also says that if we were to do a close-up it would rob the characters of their dignity even though in this moment they've mm. lost their dignity this would like further that and he doesn't want to do that so even though we're watching them at least it's in a wide shot to still give them like some semblance of privacy from us which is so weird, right? Because even the way he talks about it in these like obvious press interviews, promotion for the film, he's still talking about the characters as though they are real people, as though we yeah. are complicit in what we have seen and their grief is real and authentic. Yeah. The gender reversal that's in this scene of a wife who starts out calm, yeah. cool, and collected in the face of of just ultimate devastation while the husband is breaking down mm-hmm. is such an interesting comment. And it really, really is just groundbreaking for the time. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, think of another example. Like, even when we talk about, I, I feel like a lot of people are probably saying, oh, well, it, it kind of reminds me of a little bit of what Tony Collette goes through in Hereditary. It's not. It's not the same. Like, this is tenfold harder to watch. Well, just so you know, I just Googled men crying in movies, and there's a bunch of lists of top ten male crying scenes for any of you fetishists out there. Well, I want Ulrich to be on there. I think it is one of the most incredible. Philip Seymour Hoffman's on there twice. (laughs) Fair. How many of them are from uh, the the Mormon missionary porn site? None of them are from the Mormon (laughs) missionary porn site. mormonfoxelder.com yeah (laughs) bringing in another hanukkah quote here um hanukkah says i refuse to concede that it's necessary to smooth out the difficulties and irregularities of the world so as to console people i think one only finds real consolation where one's profoundities and fears have been touched upon and that was something that i think he displays masterfully in this sequence Mm. all right so no easy way to go about it, but the movie continues and so must the characters. So Anna decides, okay, they're gone, but we don't know for how long, so we need to move. So she props up George. We do see that his arm is totally fucked up now. So this happened during the fight that resulted in Georgie being killed. Mm-hmm. And Anna goes to the front door, but she discovers that it's locked. So she'll have to go out the window. But unfortunately, between the leg and the arm injury, Gior cannot do that. So she's going to have to go solo. But we spend a bunch of time trying to fix this motherfucking phone. Oh, God. I was like, do y'all have any rice anywhere? Well, Trace, remember, this is 1997. Rice hadn't been invented yet. So they had to use the blow dryer. Wait, I'm sorry. Rice hadn't been invented? That's a joke, right? It's a a joke. It's a joke, honey. You invited me on a movie called Funny Games. I have to try to be funny. (laughs) 
Yeah, no, I, I definitely thought rice. I definitely thought, you know what? A hairdryer is not going to fix electronics. Like, <laughs> I was yelling at Anna at this point, like, bitch, just go. Just go. leave your husband. But what I love is that even when she realizes, okay, this isn't working, I need to go. And he's telling her, you gotta go. You gotta run and just go. She kisses him goodbye and sobs that she loves him. And it is heartbreaking this this broke me i was very much and again like i i went from like being like oh this is kind of like darkly comedic like them fucking with this family too oh man this really sucks yeah and and both actresses deliver just incredible moments here both um watts and uh lothar mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so she does end up leaving him she grabs pliers so that she can cut through the fence so that she can get uh out and we see him continue to use the the hairdryer, but I do also love that we get this moment where he eats a piece of bread because part of me was like, yeah, it's the middle of the night and you never had dinner. Like in this situation, I would be inconsolable over the loss of my child. I would be terrified that my wife is going to be murdered or I would be murdered, but I'd also be fucking hungry and I would need oh, to eat a piece of bread. No, 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 no. If, if I'm in this moment, I mean, like, I've never been in this particular moment, but like when I'm stressed out, um, I'm not hungry. Well, that's great. I don't, I'm good for you, honey. It's been 12 hours since this poor man ate. So <laughs> I, I genuinely think that he, and he well, was expecting steak for dinner, y'all. I know. I, I get it. We make so much out of these steaks. They look delicious. But like, what, if I have been, <laughs> I, I, I have been grieving before. When I'm grieving, I, I'm not hungry. <laughs> like, like my body shuts down. Oh, you need you need to go to more uh, shivas then. I was going to say, hi, I'm a Jew. We right. eat when we're sad. So uh, okay, I identified as this. But half the time, y'all don't even know whose funeral you're at. Listen, <laughs> Shiva Baby, one of the best horror films of the last decade. Check out the Horror Queers episode. <laughs> okay. So as much as I made fun of him for trying to fix the phone, Georg briefly does manage to connect with Peter. This is all false hope. This is so mean. <laughs> to the audience right because we start to think oh like at this point we haven't seen the killers on screen so they haven't reminded us by breaking the fourth wall so i'm lulled back into conventional thriller territory i think okay when are the police gonna arrive who is this peter character that he's calling is he going to be able to come and rescue us and it's like, no, motherfucker, it's the same film. Like, Anna's about to get marched back in here because they picked her up on the fucking road. Okay, but I, what I love here, too, because, again, it's another, it's just like a gut punch of a moment. Because she smartly doesn't run out into the street to flag down a car. Mm-hmm. And she misses the first one, and she's like, oh, it's a van. And she's like, okay, well, maybe Shit, I should have gone for yeah, it. Yeah, I should have gone for that one. <laughs> then she's another car approaching. And because the first one was benign, she's like, okay, I'm going to flag this one down. Mm-hmm. no <laughs> no and of course we don't see any of that right like the next thing that we see is the golf ball oh rolling coming back in yes. and it's like shit we only know who would be doing this yeah we hold on this golf ball so yeah, we hear it it rolls into the doorway and then he's just staring at it and the camera just fixes on this golf ball for i want to say 20 seconds before we actually like reveal what it is Yeah, so we're basically back to where we began. (laughs) Paul invites Anna to play a new game. It's called Loving Wife. I did want to note there's one, there's a couple of dialogue changes between the film. 
I didn't clock a ton of differences that are significant, but I did in the US version. Paul does in this sort of introduction to the game refer to George as her pussy husband. Oh. In the US version. Well, because that's how Americans talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I just thought it was interesting that, you know, in some ways, this is classical thriller territory where the the woman has more agency or we're calling on her to be more of the action because in this case, George has been literally kneecapped. Yeah. Whereas, you know, in, in the Austrian version, we don't need to include that because we don't need to berate Georg. And I thought it was interesting. There's also a really wonderful moment where the viewer is further disarmed now that we're back in Peter and Paul's realm, where he turns to the camera and says, you want a real ending, right? Mm -hmm. With plausible, plausible development, don't yeah. you? And that, <laughs> if that doesn't cue the viewer up for, oh, nothing is going to go my way from here on out, I don't know what should. I will say, though, I, I took issue when he was like, we're not up to feature film length yet. And I was like, fucker, we are 95 minutes into this movie. We are definitely at feature film length. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he needed to say that at like the 67 minute mark a hundred percent but nevertheless um i will do his rhyme by knife or by gun dying can be fun <laughs> jesus christ it's like a bad pied piper <laughs> <laughs> so this new game the lover's wife we have anna being able to choose which of the two of them is next and with what implement it could be either the shotgun or a knife mm Hmm. of course the option to not die is off the table. The option to not use either of those items is off the table. So it's just, it's further cementing this illusion of, oh, you could control something. It's like, no, the outcome is predetermined. They're always going to die. Ooh, also, though, give me that shotgun over a knife any day of the week. Well, sure. That's that's what Anna is meant to be playing for, right? Fuck your husband. He's going to mm -hmm. die no matter what, and he's going to go first, but don't you want the gun so you don't have to suffer? Yep. And in this scene, Hanukkah keeps the cameras trained on Anna the entire time. And we watch her go through what I feel are the stages of grief um, with her trying to understand, trying to bargain, and then finally yep. coming into acceptance of, of her situation. And it's really, really a remarkable performance. And I think, in my opinion, this is where Naomi Watts really goes above and beyond in her portrayal. Well, and just, I mean, the moment where she finally speaks, I, I feel like you're waiting for her to say something for so, mm -hmm. so, so, so long. And th there's like a, maybe one or two false starts, but then she finally says it. It's, it, it's almost like, like a relief <laughs> or a release, a release when it does happen. What do you want me to do? Yeah. Blah. Yeah. Haunting. I guess before we get into the sort of final section, I did want to just reiterate, hit the, the message home. So I'm going to bring Lane in. Uh, she says, the showbird's suffering does not stop as long as there is an audience willing to keep watching. This is why there are negative emotions involved in watching funny games. We really are responsible for the showbird's torment, whether or not we intend to be. And I guess that's why I thought it was a bit ironic. Your quote early in the episode, Trace, where you said, People can't get mad at him because they stayed to watch. Right. And the reality is, is that we only have ourselves to blame for what well, happens. We are responsible for what will happen to these two people because we keep watching but okay, the film. But th that brings philosophy into it then. Because because to me, I'm like, okay, so, so I guess the, the, the other avenue here is that, okay, we can just walk out of the movie. If we walk mm -hmm. out of the movie, then that is 
saying, then they don't die. This no, Nothing else happens because we are not seeing it. But that's not true. Mm-hmm. It still happens. The movie still exists. Well, that's that's kind of the irony, right? Is like, yeah, we could leave. And in our minds, these characters who we have almost made authentically real won't die because we haven't seen it. Right. It's, it's also a very like individualistic, like I'm the most important person. But the yeah, the other fun reality is that it's like, okay, but the movie is already completed. Like they were dead before we started watching and always will be dead. Yeah. So, but that's why I think it's, I I can understand people being frustrated because they're like, no, your messaging doesn't really hold water, I guess, by the time the movie ends, because the movie still exists and this is still what you've done. Like, I can be complicit till the cows come home watching the movie, but at the end of the day, I didn't make this movie. Sort of. I mean, I, I think this is all leading to the big rewind moment right that and again this is about our relationship with media and the fact that we are people um again especially americans uh, michael hanukkah originally wanted to set this in america with american actors but he couldn't get the financing for it back in the 90s so uh that's why it was shot and set in austria that being said you know our relationship with media is something that is you know there's a distance between us and the screen and it's his goal to bring us closer closer and then finally into the film which is something that again tom jones unlocked for him and it's something that he wanted to utilize in a different genre altogether Hmm. okay so before we get to the big talking point uh why don't we talk about this game where anna basically has to recite a prayer and we have a different prayer in each film don't we yes it is different between the two but it's still a fairly simple prayer between both uh the reason being is that anna claims that she doesn't know a prayer which is something um that very much takes paul uh, aghast uh, <laughs> because you know this is a a woman who's created a family obviously she should very much know this i mean i i, I get it girl i would either bust out in dion warwick um or i would you know say a little you know a little hanukkah prayer from michael hanukkah um mm-hmm. but this scene this is the one that took 28 takes oh really uh, in in the austrian version this is the one where he had uh lothar go again and again and again until she was just absolutely broken um and it's uh something that i think leads really well into the next sequence interesting mm-hmm. so she's at her ultimate breaking point like that's why he made her do it so often literally yep yeah so basically she she has to recite a prayer without making a mistake and that will give her permission that it will confirm that god is on her side and therefore she will get to choose how and when she dies again not dying is off the table (laughs) and so she does it but then he says oh well you didn't pray right you know because once again stickler for rules because these are fuckity up boys so he makes her get down on her knee she has to look skyward because she's praying to god and she is Talking through with this. So Anna grabs the gun and shoots Peter. Oh, blows his ass away. And it looks amazing in it both versions. It looks great in both he versions. He flies yeah. back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we get some good air on it. We get some good gore. Question then. Why is this the violence that we do see in the film? The violence that we do see is because this is being taken directly at the audience cipher the Mm -hmm. time that we are being shown violence it's violence that's being perpetrated against us Us. by the characters in this film that we're allowing to go through it by continuing to watch it yeah 
So this is punishment for us for watching the film, for allowing the showbirds to be treated this way. If we were to walk out of the theater, if we were to press stop on our Criterion Blu-rays, they would still be alive. They become Schrodinger's family that are both alive and not. Um, but because we're continuing to watch it, and again, these killers are the audience ciphers, we are then, you know, being shown what could and should happen. So mm-hmm. I, I had an alternate reading, and this is something that I don't think this is an original thought of mine. I think this is something that I talked to someone about when I saw this film, you know, back in the 2007. But g- given the thesis of how, oh, yeah, Americans want to see violence, they want to see violence, but they want to see violence. But we don't see that for this entire film. Going into the rewind scene, I, I had this, I had someone tell me a read where it was like, yeah, so the film is robbing you of all this violence. And they they show you this moment of violence where she shoots Peter. Then they undo it. Well, they undo it because, and this is maybe, I guess, going into the rewind scene immediately, but where it's Hanukkah saying, hey, you didn't want to see all the violence against, like, the kid, against the dad, against the mom, um, which is good, but you cheered in this moment of violence against Mm -hmm. the quote-unquote bad guy. Now, right. In this re- in this reading, we're not distinguishing between good or evil. It is just violence. Even though, yes, this is a quote-unquote villain or bad character, you still shouldn't want to see the violence because it is still violence. Humans shouldn't commit violence against other humans. It's a completely valid read. Yeah, I think both readings are true. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the thing is, is that the reality is that when we see this moment, we all cheer. And we don't yeah. stop to think, why am I cheering for violence, right? Like, it it takes a moment or sometimes even minutes or hours for us to realize, oh, I don't think I was actually meant to cheer for that, even though I'm conditioned to want to see violence done against the villains, quote unquote. Right. You're condoning violence, even though it's technically against someone who deserves it. But then that's putting that's making you the judge, jury and executioner. 100% Trace. But it doesn't matter because it all gets undone. Where's the remote? I almost wish I could have seen this not knowing about the rewind scene. Right? I don't know how I would have reacted. I did. I watched this completely cold. No one <laughs> told me. I had no idea. I watched this for the very first time. And when the remote is grabbed, the, the film freezes. The film kind of... And there's a moment where I was like... Is there something? And then it goes. What's back. wrong with my disc? Yes. What's wrong with 100%, the hundred percent? I genuinely thought there was something wrong, and then oh my gosh, when I realized what was happening, I had to pause it because I started laughing mm. so hard and so uncomfortably because I realized that I was just a pawn in all of this. That yeah. I was being again completely complicit with everything that was happening and everything that was being shown you know now knowing about some of the the motives behind what michael was was doing you know i was exactly that american yeah there's something incredibly satisfying about how infuriating this makes yes me yes that, no because i'm watching and i'm like god fucking damn it like mm-hmm. <laughs> god damn it but then i'm also like admiring well Hanukkah well for being like the the audacity of you sir like yes <laughs> well so on this though so he, he even says like the, the screenwriting process for him up until and again he's saying the child's death um was very simple but after that he ran into like a snag so he managed to introduce another ep- element of delay you know when you know Anna gets away comes back but he could not get past that point so he put the general framework together but had no idea how to continue the story but at some point he had this idea 
the positive shift in direction is only a hope that the audience is still harboring. Uh, Haneke says, I have to lead them to believe that it still might happen, that she will kill Peter, that she will get away um, in order to really disappoint them when it doesn't. So like the, the road scene with the van, <laughs> that was a precursor to yes. the rewind scene. Oh, yeah. He he has carefully laid out nearly every big development in the film. Like he gives us little tasters of what's to come. And it's like, are you paying attention? Do you recognize you're watching a constructed film? Exactly. So the rewind scene highlights the filmic nature of what you're seeing. But he then also says, this was meant to hurt. I was playing a cynical game with viewers' expectations. I made it very clear to viewers what they were watching. I rubbed mm-hmm. their noses in it again and again. This is a film. But viewers felt grabbed by the scruff of the neck, and people don't like that. They don't like to be seen through. This was a really provocative aspect. It wasn't the violence. There's more violence than any police drama on television. It was the underlying attitude I had and the film had. That's why people felt offended. Intellectuals said, I'm not that stupid. You don't need to tell me that. I already know that. And they hated it. Yep. (laughs) Because here's the thing. We can rationally say that we understand it and we know what he's doing, but emotionally... This is him kicking us in the fucking dick. It does hurt. Yes. Hanukkah has a really great quote about the rewind just because it's something he's been asked 8 billion times. Oh, of course. On the rewind, uh, Michal Hanukkah says, it's a device, just like breaking the fourth wall and looking into the camera. Like all of the devices that I used in Funny Games, it's done to increase alienation because a thriller is normally subject to rules. Nothing bad happens to animal and children. Injustice (laughs) must be avenged by the end. Through alienation, I broke these rules so as to make apparent to viewers that what their expectations normally are aren't their expectations of a thriller are that they will be cheated of reality because in reality injustice is not usually an avenged and in reality children animals and the people we love do die well, mm-hmm. and to be clear, like we've seen rewind scenes in film before. The, what what sure. this film does differently, though, is it rewinds it and then changes what we saw before. Yeah. The other interesting thing is, again, to hammer home the idea that we're complicit in this, we see Paul initially hit the button. And yes, uh, depending on which version you're watching, he hits the wrong button. That's fine. Whatever. But um, we see him do it and then we don't see him stop it. And he doesn't look at us to be like, and now I'm going to restart it. So in some ways, it almost makes it seem like we have stopped it and started to replay it. Like he doesn't acknowledge, hey, I'm the one doing this. It's almost like, oh, aren't you doing this? Well, because it's the only time, though, that we see Paul, like, not in control. Mm -hmm. And and that's why. And I almost like that, but it also feels very against character for him. Well, that's why he has to rewind it. Exactly. And we're we're in this universe that they've created. And they are us. Yeah, which is why the very, like, next set of lines is Paul yelling it. Well, not yelling, because he never yells. He's always in control. He tells her, no, you can't shoot Peter. That's against the rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So then he shoots her husband. Off screen again. Yep. Always off screen, because the violence that we wanted, we've already gotten and rewound it motherfuckers that's over <laughs> so we get bundled up in our yellow raincoats we go out to the sailboat and i feel like this is that emotional just absolute collapse like at this point i'm exhausted with this movie yeah the conversation between peter and paul where they're talking about fiction versus reality it's 
almost heavy handed to the point where it feels like it's for the people who haven't figured out what the fucking movie is doing. Uh, it kind of does. Yeah, that, that, that's what that's what it feels like. <laughs> and then you're like, OK, well, how is Anna going to get out of this? How are we going to get this fucking happy ending? Chekhov's knife, Chekhov's knife. She tries. They see it. They just grab it, throw it overboard. It, which is brilliant because you you genuinely think that she has a ch- like. Uh, even in this no, moment, when I this watched point. this the mm. first time, I thought everything was building to this. I saw the knife. I remembered it's there. She grabs it and begins to cut. But Michal Hanukkah doesn't even let us sit with that moment no. for more than a second before taking it away. It's amazing. But that's why it's interesting that you call it Chekhov's knife, because that would imply that the knife has a use for something when it comes well, back. <laughs> it, it's Chekhov because it comes back, but that's, yeah, the only I thing. Think, I think the use in any other film, in any other thriller that plays by the rules, yeah. that mm-hmm. is Chekhov's knife. And so when we are in this thriller that is playing by, you know, Michal Hanukkah's rules, we are forced to see what is Chekhov's knife and have it be thrown overboard. Yeah, it's just a narrative construct. You're in the wrong film. This is not what you expect. (laughs) See, I was so defeated by this point. Even knowing what was going to happen, I knew these characters died. But by this point, I am wrung out and hung out to dry. Like, I've been ridden hard and put out wet. (laughs) And it was just like, like, when he nonchalantly just pitches Anna overboard, and we don't see her drown we never see her again it's just like no (laughs) it's just like i hate you for what you have done to me i am a hollow core of a human being at this point ciao bella she gets the worst death i'm sorry again give me a shotgun to the face over drowning any fucking day of the week after having to watch the rest of your family murder yeah her she she had a really bad last day of life (laughs) and of course the boys don't fucking care about this they're hungry which is why we killed Anna an hour earlier than scheduled and then we just go off and start it all over again with the next house can i have some eggs and then a sly it's not even a wink he just looks at the audience and there's like a smirk and if you're paying attention it's it's the character that we've known as peter all this time who says uh, that he's Paul, and he's asking for the eggs, doing what Paul did at the other house, leading you to believe that this was just a baton pass. It's your turn to be Paul, and mm-hmm. they're just going to switch roles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can be fatty this time. I'll be Beavis, whatever, whatever. It's wild. It's, uh, yeah, then the, the, the movie's over. <laughs> well, and then we, we get our medal again, yes. just as a final fuck you. Naked City <laughs> screaming at us once more. We did have metal music be diegetic when during georgie's chase scene and that's the song hellraiser that i brought up earlier got it Mm, okay uh okay well so so before we close out i wanted to bring up saying we've talked about the remake and everything i was curious about hanukkah's thoughts on that remake and like about the reception of it so he does say at the very tail end of this interview he spends barely any time talking about it but um he says you know he thought the film would play better in america because he intended the film for an american audience his ideas proved wrong, though. He says, despite the American actors, presumably a real plus, people still realized that my film was a Trojan horse, and they never gave the film a chance. They called it nothing but a shot-for-shot remake. He says he didn't read a single serious analysis or review of the remake. He just saw things like, he made the same film again. That was it. But no <laughs> one asked why. So my question for both of you, since you have just seen this remake, um, why? why? Why would he remake this film? And not just remake it, but ba- basically make the exact same movie again with American actors. 
That's quite simple. He made the film that he always wanted to make second. He mm-hmm. wanted this to be an American film with American actors produced in America because it was what he was trying to say. I mean, can you imagine in 19, you know, 97 years before Columbine saying yeah. um, that this is something that is happening in your country and in the world? I mean, Benny's video was in response to him studying, um, you know, American teenagers and even some in Europe that were committing heinous crimes. And when they were were being asked why they were doing it they couldn't give a reason which is something that you know really was a a horror to to Hanukkah that this was something that you know really really you know delved back to you know history I mean Hanukkah is somebody that was born at the height of World War II in Germany and he and and you know his family left and, and moved to Austria and it's something that you know the unspeakable tragedies that befell the the German people and and is something that's incredibly prescient to any Anyone that that is in that region, especially somebody growing up therein and and thereafter, and it's something that you know, looking at what we were becoming as a society, you know, both in Europe and especially in America, that was what his thesis was on our relationship with with media as Americans, and really wanted this to be something that Americans could see and connect to. If if Hanukkah had their their druthers, this would have come out first. So, okay, then, then my question to uh, just to both of you is then, is there something that you as an audience member get out of the American remake that you don't get from this version? Hmm. Naomi Watts. And, <laughs> and I'm, I'm being honest. I mean, uh, when, when, when Michal Hanukkah was, was given many opportunities to make this film, um, it wasn't until he had seen Watts's performance um, ironically in Mulholland Drive that that's right. when he said I want Watts and would mm-hmm. only make this film with Naomi Watts I think again that Naomi Watts gives an immense performance in this film and it's something that, that is to be seen it's something that's to be studied um, when it comes to the differences between the two films again I watch them literally side by side and there aren't many but as if I was seeing the American version first as an American I feel as if I could have and should have consumed this film differently than if I was watching, you know, a foreign film. And right. I think it's something that we're, again, forced to look at the mirror that this director is holding up for us and forcing us to be Alice and go in his wonderland and go through that looking glass and be a part of this film. Well, so Joe, and this might be different, or maybe more difficult for you to answer because you just watched both of them for the first time within like 24 hours of each other. But mm-hmm. do you have a different answer? Uh, how you experienced it? Um, No, mine's kind of the same. I mean, the ironic thing for me is that I fucking hate it when we justify making American remakes of amazing international films because we think it's going to be more palatable for english-speaking audiences which is just ridiculous and i hate it It drives me wild and yet the fact that hanukkah is saying that leads me to believe that there is actually currency in the argument like he understands that in order to get his point across he needed to make this for an american audience in a format that an american audience would be more inclined to consume and as a result i think it actually justifies him remaking the film because as you said justin it's the movie he wanted to make in 1997 he just couldn't 
he couldn't make it in the language in the format that he wanted but he had it more or less perfected so he said cool i'll just do it again now that i'm more famous and i have the money so in some ways like watching it very close together i was like this is satisfying on both counts like both films are incredible i would recommend them unabashedly for people in the right mindset but at the end of the day i think it only is justified because of his rationale otherwise i'm like well the original is there and it's a great film so i found this quote and i I, the thing is this it's it's a quote from hannikin i could not tell if it was about the original film or the remake but I'm assume I'm going to assume it's about the remake because Haneke says he wanted to make a message about violence in the media by making an incredibly violent but otherwise pointless movie. <laughs> and I almost feel like, yeah, because I mean, I, I feel like you know, people that bitch about remakes all the time, they're like, oh, what's the point? And it's specifically right. in one that is essentially the exact same movie shot for shot, just with American actors in English. You could argue that it's, quote unquote, pointless, right. just like a lot of the violence that we want to consume as American uh, uh, people. Yeah. But, um, yeah, all right. That is a funny games. I think we've got everything out, but are there any final words on this? Just such a light conversation. You know, <laughs> it's like a palate cleanser. I think that Michal Hanukkah is an absolute brilliant director. I really encourage anyone that's not familiar with his films to explore his filmography. Again, um, Benny's video is an immense precursor to funny games equally as frustrating and equally as devastating in very, very different ways. Um, mm. And that's a streaming in the US on on Max. But there's just so many films in both um, French, English, and German um, that are really, really challenging in exciting ways that if you are somebody that is a film fan, um, really, really, you should do yourself the favor and be challenged with. Um, one last quote from him. Uh, he says, it's a real blessing to make films. That's why I don't need a psychiatrist. he's just working out his shit on us that's fair although i bet a psychiatrist would have a field day with hanukkah (laughs) truly all right well before we announce that we're covering next week uh justin thank you so much for coming to talk about this and really bringing your a game with the research methods uh Mm -hmm. let everyone know where can they find you on social media uh, well, my first scene on missionaryboys.com dropped. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> there we um, go. Are you an elder? Yeah, or you must you be an boy? elder. You're oh, not I'm an boy. elder at this point, gentlemen. <laughs> um, so you can uh, visit me on Instagram, Mogwai47, Mogwai for my favorite fictional creature, 47, the number of times I was stung when I stepped on a yellow jacket's nest. And then oh. I'm also available on both Twitter, I refuse to call it X, and Letterbox under my first initial last name, J as in Jaguar, N as in Narwhal, O as in Ostrich, R as in Rhino, D as in Dog, E as in Eagle, L as in Llama, L as in the second L in Llama, especially my Letterbox. I watch a new-to-me film every day, and I try to post a little bit of my thoughts on it um love uh, interacting with different people so please come say hi all right well if you want to say hi to us you can reach us on twitter and instagram at horrorqueers shoot us an email at horrorqueers at gmail.com find us on letterbox to keep track of all the films we've covered go to our youtube channel to watch our chucky reviews and tune in once a month to hear about our most anticipated horror films for that month if you want to chat with other listeners please join our facebook horror queers group If you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. If you subscribe today, you'll get almost 268 hours of Patreon content, including this month's new episodes on, oh boy, Hell House LLC Origins, The Carmichael Manor. (laughs) 
The Fall Jesus. of the House of Usher, Five Nights at Freddy's, Thanksgiving, and our audio commentary for the month will be on the original Child's Play. Ooh. Uh-huh, at least two of those titles are short. Yeah. <laughs> but Joe, mm-hmm. I feel like all the content warnings apply for this one next week, but um, what are we covering? Indeed, yeah, we're going to get extremely rapey. So folks, this is not a jokey content warning. This is like, if you are upset by sexual assault, don't fully just fucking skip the episode in the movie. We're talking about 2008's toxic masculinity to the extreme dead girl. And to be clear, this is not the dead girl. It is dead girl. One word. Oof. Have fun, gentlemen. Yeah. I, it's funny because we actually did watch this last year together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so now I'm watching it again. Yay. <laughs> I will say I really like this movie because I do. Well, you know what? I'll save it for next week. But everyone, there we go. proceed with caution. Yes. But uh, until next week, we can cross out funny games. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. And cross out horror queers. 